Support for WAER Original Podcasts comes from California Closets of Syracuse, located in DeWitt. California Closets can help you get your entire home organized with custom design storage solutions for the home office, kitchen pantry, closets, and more. Online at californiaclosets.com. Music can do a lot of things. It can bring us joy, energize us, comfort us when we're in pain. It can also raise awareness and offer real, concrete support in times of need. I'm Kendall Phillips, and my guest on this episode of Pop Life is Eugene Hutz, an iconic figure in punk rock and founder of the legendary band Gogo Bordello. Since 1999, Hutz and Gogo Bordello have been infusing Romani and Ukrainian culture into high-energy rock, and since the Russian invasion of Ukraine, they've been turning that energy towards helping the people of Ukraine and raising awareness. Their new album is entitled Solidaritine, and in June, a new documentary about the band and its Ukrainian roots entitled Scream of My Blood, a Gogo Bordello story, will premiere at the Tribeca Film Festival. Eugene, welcome to Pop Life. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thrilled to have you. I wanted to start, uh, and I got a million questions because you have such a fascinating career and amazing life, and there's just so I could keep you here for hours and hours and weeks talking about that. But I do want to start with the new album, Solidarity, which clearly is a call for solidarity, I, I guess, with the people of Ukraine, but more broadly. So I'm wondering, what does solidarity mean to you? Why that is a title for the album? Well, I mean, music, needless to say, has has tangible power to unite people and also provide sense of direction i mean especially that you know for example with something like uh war in ukraine begins you know some people are just a lot more informed than others it's uh nature it's a huge part of some of human nature everybody just kind of basically consumed by their own uh business up to 98% of their capacities and the little that they have to spare is pretty and sometimes just like wobbles in indefinite territory because let's face it it was said by many not even Socrates and Aristotle but pre-Socratic philosophers humans were not uh, never excelled in particularly taking any situation under microscope and they operate on mythology most of the time and mythology, which is, if you get it under microscope, you will understand it's complete disinformation. And the many great, you know, thinkers wrote about that, especially Joseph Campbell, Power of Myth. I mean, without which any script writing for Hollywood would be not nearly as effective or probably even non-existent. Uh, as you look into science of script writing, your role of seeds follows pretty much the blueprint of Joseph Campbell outline to the dot, you know? So people, you know, deal with mythology instead of getting real information. And sometimes voice of, voice of a, a respected musician, uh, as for example, in this situation was uh, Patti Smith, you know, and uh, Jello Biafra, you know, trusted voices. Sure. You know, I'm sure that if Joe Strummer was alive, a lot of people were would look at to him, to guidance, you know, so, you know, having iconic voices like that of people who have heart and mind in the right place, that's kind of how music can provide a sense of direction of people who are just figuring it out. So, you know, 
10 days later after the beginning of war, we were already playing a benefit with Patty Smith and uh, Susanna Vega, uh, Jesse Mallon, you know, just uh, Matisseyahu, uh, several other people. It just was a crucial time when that was needed in the very, very first days of that confusion, you know. So that's the tangibility of it, you know. Yeah. Did you find it, was it easy to get these other rock musicians and bands involved that they, they wanted to lend their voice and their, and their notoriety, their personality to the cause of supporting the people of Ukraine? Um, here's the thing. If they weren't, if they weren't already there, um, they, we would not be working with them. I mean, there was no time to waste on trying to get on, on, on the right page. Some people just were so far removed from this, uh, what's happening that, 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 uh, you know, as you were talking to them, you understood you were just up against moving, moving, uh, it's going to take a long time and you're going to waste a lot of time. So, you know, of course you, you, you steer them towards understanding it, but, uh, it was a lot more effective to work with people who were already there and wanted to do it. And, uh, you know, then more people joined in that project that I started with Jello Biafra and, you know, more friends who were, whose heart and, and mind in the right place, you know, joined in. Trek Cool from Green Day and uh, Joe Lally from Fugazi, one of my favorite bands of all times. Roger Miret, one of my all-time aspirations, the singer of Agnostic Front. Uh, Monty from Ministry, just icons of sonic projection. And uh, old Jorgensen and Ministry also a great support. You know, there was there was a lot of uh, there was a lot of things that I was uh, able to not only do with people, but also observe other people doing it. I mean, old Jorgensen in the first days of this invasion was already touring with Ukrainian anthem being the opening sounds of the his concert. I mean, he's not Ukrainian. And uh, it's just solidarity, going back to that. And uh, Les Claypool uh, of Primus, one of the great American originals, you know, we were connected on the first day, literally on the, on the first day when that happened, we were already talking about it. Sean Lennon chimed, chimed in, you know, the list goes on. There was a lot of people who were doing it on their own accord too, you know. And so the solidarity really becomes not just solidarity with the people of Ukraine, but solidarity across multiple people kind of bringing their voices together. Now, as I understand, you and, and the folks in Primus uh, recorded a song together, the Zelensky, the man with the iron balls. How did that song come about? Well, I mean, basically, Les wrote that song and uh, sent it to me to for me to chime in and co-write the song. I mean, you know, we, we toured before. We know each other well for a long time. So. For us, it's a, always a natural connection. You know, we're kind of, um, we were pretty instantaneous about that. And uh, more of uh, Stuart Copeland and um, Sean Lally, I already, already talked about that, chimed in on that song. Yeah, you know? So, but that that is the cool part of the uh, musical community is that the solidarity there spreads you know, um, I mean, I didn't have to 
orchestrate anything. That that was just the voice of them as people who they are. You know what I mean? Yeah. Some people need to be helped along, but that was, I mean, and still are, you know what I mean? But that that's not the people we worked in the beginning with, you know what I mean? Like, if somebody was not into it, we would just move on and don't even waste any time, you know? They'll find out later who they're dealing with, you know? That's, it's been a very, it seems to have been a very successful support effort, uh, and I know people can go to the uh, Gogo Bordello website and see other ways to help the folks in Ukraine. So I'm wondering if I could just ask one more question about that. You know, when, when I think of your music, um, again, incredibly iconic band, I think of the energy. And everyone I've talked to when I said you were coming on the show, everyone had stories of going to a concert and talking about the pit and this incredible energy and this kind of real joyous explosion of, of sound and and. and but I'm wondering how that works with politics. Because I think for a lot of people, rock music is fun, but it's not political. So can you talk a little bit for you, the intersection between, you know, music and politics? Well, I don't see how music can be uh, apolitical. I mean, not in punk rock. You know, I mean, my predominant interest in music was always iconoclastic art forms like, you know, punk and uh, everything that grows out out of it, basically you know, goth and, and industrial and um, and post-punk and oi and, and hardcore, you know, the most communal music of all, you know. Um, so all the songs from from my beginning of exploring music were going hand-to-hand -hand with all kind of political matters. But so I don't think, I think it's inseparable. I mean, people who, I mean, you have to really try hard for to make music that's, apolitical and uh, i can't recall a one single fucking successful example of that you know but that that's me you know i mean anything from from uh, i mean in protopunk in protopunk and and i'm actually i just had you know as i was doing my tours in in uh las vegas uh, the, in the punk museum that just opened i basically over the course of tours uh reflected on these things Yet one more time, and yes, in the proto-punk uh, era, you know, with Stooges and uh, Slade and Monks and uh, MC5 and New York Dolls, you know, maybe punk, maybe political uh, element wasn't predominant in their music. It was still largely about existential, you know... Uh, <laughs> joyous rage and partying and and more partying and uh all sorts of uh, life melodrama and you know just just persevering through hardships of life but the elements of of political streaks that you know that they had you know mc5 and new york dolls just tiny bits of it that's what that's when punk became really punk really defined itself as when six pistols came out and uh and uh, you know the Clash and uh, and Dead Kennedys and Crass, you know, and so on. So that's what kind of was the absolute prerequisite of uh, you know stimulating punk rock. It it had to be political. So for you, what what was the first band that really spoke to you? What was that first band or or artist that you said, "Wow, yeah, that is something. That's that's me. That's my soul in that song." Who was that? Well, it's impossible really to nail that it's always a cluster of bands, you know, especially that, uh, you know, I was I was kind of spoiled as, as a as a music, 
secret music knowledge, so to speak, was passed on to me by my father, who was very savvy about just about anything that was going on in music. I mean, he was listening to everything from, you know, Pink Floyd to Kraftwerk and uh, everything in between, you know, the usual doors and, you know, Deep Purple's, Deep Purple and Led Zeppelin and so on and so forth. So, you know, for me, I was, and, and, and we're getting quite far into metal already as a kid, you know, back in Ukraine, but music that really blew my roof off and said that, yes, that's, that's really what's going to be is when I got uh, several tapes from my friends who were a little bit older and were already onto, onto punk rock. You know, I was around 13, 14 years old, and I got tapes that were on one side, it would be Dead Kennedys, on the other one would be Devo, on one side would be Sex Pistols, on the other one would be Joy Division, on, the, on one would be The Cure, and, uh, and uh, on the other one would be, I think it was, uh, I think Susanna Banshees, yeah. And so, you feel me like, that was, that's, uh, you could tell that, this music was made by people who are essentially dilettants, you know, but such a um, powerful, energetic dilettants that they persevere on, on to creating like a whole aesthetic platform, which if you listen to all, everything that I just named, I mean, with in that Kennedy's case, you, of course, you have to really know how to play your instruments. It's, it's pretty... Uh, it's pretty mind-blowing punk hardcore. But, you know, you know, listening to Joy Division, you could just, it immediately wanted you to grab instruments and just start playing because it, it, it seems like you can do it. It's not any kind of a John Bonham material where you, like, really have to have a wrist, you know, like, positioned correctly. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it gave you that impression. And so you start with that and pretty much... Uh, uh, that becomes your lifestyle. With that music comes a lot more. I mean, with that music comes understanding that you don't have to follow all these prescripted, prescribed notions of life and society, and you don't have to. You don't have to become a fucking yuppie, you know, and follow into that doomsday of uh, unexplained, meaningless life, you know, and pursue some kind of a. Cheeseball ideals of status and social playing and all that kind of crap. So you already pretty pretty feel liber liberated from that just by being part of the circle. And and then when that becomes a way of you making a living, which is <laughs> many many years down the road, <laughs> you know, you know that there is a payoff in that too. So you know that's the. Positive mental attitude of punk rock. I mean, it, it attracts good things along the way, you know. If you're not, like, cut up completely in all those, like, cliche negative uh, aspects of, you know, of, of punk, you know. Because they're there, you know. But that's that, that's not, my, like, Sid Vicious punk rock, is, that's not what I got out of punk rock, you know. Like, that's not what I, that's not why I loved it. I mean, I love whole Sid's, uh, you know, uh, sonic legacy you know but and, and the vibe of uh you know of all rascal youth and, and unruliness of it but uh you know i hope i wish he would be alive and uh you know and you feel me like that's not that's not my punk rock 
No, no, I totally. In, in fact, you and I seem we grew up on the same playlist, like all those bands. And it was a mix of ACDC and Bauhaus and Husker Du and the Pixies and all these sorts of bands. I mean, great, great bands. But I'm wondering, and maybe this is just my old man uh, talking. When I think about when I grew up, and, and it sounds like the same to you, it was a lot of tapes being passed around. It was like, you know, I, I, I had this. I'll tape that. I give it to my friend. It cycles around. Do you think that's changed for kids today who are mainly getting – uh, their music through these streaming services and algorithms? I mean, do you think that's had any impact on the, the way we use music in our lives or the way it impacts us? I think so. I think that, I mean, I love Tidal and Spotify and all that. I mean, just their, you know, the ability to reach a lot of what, 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 you, know, what, what you could use on a road trip or, you know, whip something quick together. But I think because... It is so easy. It's also, you know, that's not an invested effort, you know, as a, making a mixtape for for someone what was an effort. And um, what it did, I think it, people were forced to exercise more their curatorial power, you know, and be more sharper. I mean, you couldn't make a tape of like Death Kennedy's on one side and Journey on another. People would think you're a idiot you know <laughs> and and it would be immortalized in that tape yes yeah. <laughs> you know so i mean you could but you know <laughs> you know and uh, and even making i mean you, you thought about it more it's by the same similar thing happens with you know uh if you wanted to read like blavatska you know back back in the day you had to really go to a library that I mean, those books weren't even for sale, even in the West. Like, you have to go to a special library to get it. That's in, you have to invest time. And by investing time, that is a more, um, you value what you obtained. And you take it uh, as, you, you know, you treat it as something that's more substantial. As the easiness of access of it breeds kind of non-substantial approach. So everything became this kind of one uh, plateau of this like superficial chairman in and with chairman in with that without any real commitment. And, th and that's where we're at. Yeah. I mean, I mean, the quality of the taste, the taste just dropped by like, you know, 85, 90% in the last 10 years alone. Like, <laughs> Maybe because it's too easy. Perception. Right, because it's so easy to just click on and, and upload, and it's not like when you had to go track down that one record shop that carried that particular, that one bookstore that had those kinds of authors. And get, don't get me wrong, you know, like, I always championed new music and new technology. Like, you know, in the 90s, I was, like, already DJing from mini discs. you know. People didn't even know what it is, you know. Uh, they thought I was a wizard, that I have something up my sleeves, you know. But <laughs> <laughs> I was using tiny things, and designing things that were like proto proto now actually but then i kind of i kind of developed some healthy distance from technology because i think it's kind of with ease it's uh, supports idea of uh, superficiality for sure one of the things when I, when I think about your music and i was going back and listening to a lot of the the albums from gogo bordello to get ready for the interview just kind of going back through your discography 
And it's interesting to me that the, the music is very, very energetic and it's very exciting, but it's also very technical. It's, it, it, it's remarkably kind of virtuoso performances as much as that might not be what people think about first when they think of you. They think of the energy and the excitement and, and, and all that, but it must take a lot of effort to get players who are able to make these actually very complicated songs. Oh, I mean, we have classically trained musicians in a band. So I think it would be pretty naive to expect them not to deliver that. <laughs> Fair point. I mean, it's oftentimes the case, you know, people are just like, people, um, you know, once they meet you and they see that what you're all about, they kind of actually, most of the time, um, um, it, it reshapes their idea of what's happening because... I think most of the time they see you on stage and you're basically, you know, high party swing mode and uh, they assume that that's all there is, which is really kind of a one dimensional approach to <laughs> to anything, <laughs> you know. So, you know, for me, that's not uh, for me, it's normal because since a young age, I was, you know, in always with musicians and backstage and seeing how how people who uh, eccentric and uh, flamboyant and buck wild on stage are, are actually backstage or introverted intellectuals. And uh, which to me is not any kind of contradiction at all. You know, I mean, anybody who met Iggy Pop probably observed the same. And uh, there is no contradiction whatsoever because one is the wild side of the other. You know, it's kind of, I think, David Bowie, first time he saw the Stooges, described it as a music of wild side of American existentialism, you know, which was absolutely accurate way to describe it because that's exactly what Iggy and the Stooges were putting into it. You know, it was not any kind of a simple tone music by any means. So, you know, what you're hearing is definitely well constructed music. And uh, I mean, I studied music theory when I was younger. I just abandoned it because uh, I actually more enjoyed theory of orchestration, and that's what you're hearing. <laughs> Berlioz and, and that whole school of, uh, which was planned out by classical com composers. And in some in some ways, Gogol Bordello was described one here and there by like symphopunk, you know, which is definitely oxymoronic. <laughs> But uh, I think if there was ever symphopunk, we probably pre came pretty close to that, you know, maybe along with Mr. Bungle, you know, to some degree. And, uh, but, you know, that was probably also true only for one or two albums. So you're, I mean, you're incredibly intelligent person. You've got a great classical training. Many of your members in the band are classically trained. You could probably do anything, any musical genre. What is it about punk? Why is punk the comfortable home for your artistic vision? Well, chiefly because of its kind of an all-inclusive, democratic, spirited environment. I mean, you know, being 12 years old when I started when I was going to music school and still back in Kiev and taking like extra private lessons with, uh, you know, for drums, which was my original thing. Yeah, you know, I was going to see a lot of jazz rock. 
And uh, I just didn't like that environment. I just didn't like that hang. It was so pretentious. And, um, you know, even though I, I, I've met musicians that were, you know, that I admired seeing them on, you know, band screen or, you know, I just thought that that's not really the vibe of uh, where I want to be. Like, I don't want to be actually there. I don't want to be behind velvet rope. And I don't want to be in some room with a very few people and the rest of them chased out like so when i started going to see metal and punk shows and actually writing reviews for them for a local newspaper at a very at a very young age i was basically for a short period of time i had a kind of you know rock journalist thing going you know and uh, once i started going backstage you know and just smoking and drinking with the guys from the metal and punk bands. I just completely forgot anything about the whole jazz rock world that absolutely disinterested me. Be not because of music, because of the hang, you know? You found your community and that sort of felt good, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was just a lot more charismatic to be with people. And I don't mean to generalize, of course, I keep, I mean, I keep admiring and uh, I love a lot, a lot of music from from that neck of the woods, you know, I mean, and and here in particular, I'm talking about Soviet Ukraine, you know, so I am sure that the, you know, jazz rock scene here was a little bit more uh, eccentric, but at my formative roots years, I just didn't like that whole VIP environment of music. I don't think that's what music is about. I wanted to be with the boys and girls who are, you know, punching in some effective riffs on stage and then get off the stage and you hang out with them all night, you know? And uh, which was perfectly, you know, happening in particularly in New York hardcore scene, in, in DC hardcore scene. That's like music that really influenced me when I moved here, you know? That was the music that, those were the musicians I wanted to be in with. No, it seems to me like the the punk and I'd say the metal communities really are global. Wherever you go in the world, you, you can connect to those audiences. And I think about your career in life. You really have been a citizen of the world. You're born and your roots are very much in Ukraine, but you've lived in various places in Europe and now the United States. So how do you think that global perspective comes in through your music now? Perfectly so. I mean, you know, I was just admiring the fact like I was saying that being in punk rock museum made me reflect on things and you know it just reminds me that you know as I as I was talking about for example Hispanic influence in punk and hardcore which is immense and undeniable you know even talking about that reminds me I mean three people in my band are Hispanic you know Pedro is from Ecuador Corey is Puerto Rican Ashley is Puerto Rican so because there is a huge affinity that we discovered. I mean, I discovered it as soon as I moved to New York City, that Eastern European and uh, Latin spirits are very mucho kindred. You know, they are just nearly one and the same in so many respects, you know, of a primordial kind of appreciation of life. And so, you know, it reflects itself in, 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 in being in playing together. All inclusivity of punk rock is one thing, but that's just like a platform. And from that platform, it grows into uh, an actual band that are comprised of people from different uh, continents and uh, been rocking together for decades. I mean, 
you know, once Pedro and I met, it was, it was, uh, you know, uh, it was tight operation everywhere we went, you know. It is truly global solidarity. So I have to ask you one more question, uh, Eugene. I'm, I'm curious. So we know the album Solidarity is now out. Soon we're going to have a documentary. Uh, so tell us a little bit how that came about. Where did this uh, Scream of My Blood documentary, how did that originate? Yeah, so once again, very um, much coming from a friend kind of perspective. Nate Palmer, who directed it once again, basically on his own dime for years around the decade has been following us to, you know, all different parts of the world, filming, documenting, rocking with us, shaking on the buses and trains and planes. And um, I mean, we have a, we have uh, two documentaries that came out about Google Borrello in the previous years. Um, but, you know, the evolution goes on, evolution continues. And for this chapter, um, Nate kind of did an amazing job of including this whole chapter, but also going all the way back to Ukraine, to very much where I was born and raised, and uh, you know, kind of going back and digging in into all precursors. How you know my father was uh, persecuted in in Soviet Ukraine, and why we had to leave, and why we're here, and uh, the whole political refugee aspects of it, and uh, also kind of getting you know the band the band story i mean it's a pretty complex film in that sense and uh, i'm impressed that they were able to narrow it down because you know we're not zz top with three members who were there from the beginning to the end you know google bordello is more of a collective with core members and uh, some people some performers and musicians who come in for several years and move on i mean or some people left to create a family you know and uh, that's normal i mean it's it's kind of impossible to have eight people band with that that was monolithically together like i don't know of anything like that so telling that story of a this collective that has both elements of core member core members and revolving door a little bit you have to be a good novelist to put that <laughs> in practice and plus and to edit all the footage, including, you know, much respect to Nate and Vice uh, news crew who got behind the film and helped to helped it to finish to to be um, mastered basically quickly at this point. Uh, you know, they also followed us to Ukraine this summer when we went to perform for the soldiers. You know, it's a definitely dignified move and. Um, which farthered our bonding. So, I mean, we know each other for a very long time, but, you know, it's like just when you thought you can't bond any farther, <laughs> you know, something completely insane happens like this, like a uh, uh, Russian invasion. And uh, much respect to to Vice and, and Nate backing us. It's our escapade, you know. They went there, we, well, we, went, we, we went there on our own dime to do this and to, to keep bringing attention to Ukrainian story. You know, so I'm glad people will be able to see the whole arch of it and uh, why to begin with, with cold band Gogol Bordello and, uh, you know, which is Gogol precisely being, uh, you know, Ukrainian writer, which is exactly why I picked that, because oftentimes Russians trying to claim 
him as their own accomplishment of, of some kind, as they always do. But um, we're pretty much at the end of that era where they can get away with anything like that. You know, so there's a lot of what you will see is probably goes more into for the for for the fans of music with purpose, you know, uh, which is what hardcore and punk rock always was. Well, fans of music with purpose can find Solidarity wherever music is sold, and soon we'll be able to see the documentary. Uh, but now, Eugene, it is time for uh, our favorite segment of pop life. We call it the Fast Five. So I'm going to ask you five very short questions with either or answers. I'm going to ask you to pick your favorite choice. We'll start with question number one. Uh, you starred in Lee Schreiber's film, Everything Illuminated, part of your acting career, which we didn't get a chance to talk about. Which do you think is Schreiber's most iconic role? Was it when he played Cotton Weary in Scream 2 or when he played Sabretooth in X-Men 2? Um, I think, of course, X-Men 2. I mean, come on. You got to go with it. So question number two, this one may be harder for you, Eugene. Which is the most iconic punk band? Would it be the Sex Pistols or the Dead Kennedys? Well, this is a, this is a very hard one. Uh, I mean, they're both undeniably, uh, undeniably powerful and magnificent punk bands. Um, it's impossible. I'm going to have to just go with both sides. And, uh, you know, they both blew me out of the water and continue to do so. Yeah. Because you're you, Eugene, we will allow you to get away with having them both. So maybe another tough question. If you could sit down and have a cup of coffee and chat with one iconic late rock star, would it be Prince or David Bowie? Uh, David Bowie. Uh, David Bowie was a lot more uh, just connected in the vortex music of, more, of music that I was in. Um, Prince seems to be uh, a complete... Uh, demiurge of his own world and uh, of super high class but i i just i don't it just never kind of became a part of my biography really so for one reason or another now speaking of your biography you recently as we discussed teamed up with members of primus for the song zelensky the man with the iron balls so for you which primus album would you pick as their best would it be the platinum selling sailing the seas of cheese from 1991 or their grammy nominated primus and the chocolate factory with the fungi ensemble from 2015 which is your preferred primus album these of cheese Cheese of cheese, yeah. absolutely. So finally, <laughs> question number five for you, Eugene. You've had success on the silver screen. Which would you prefer to be your next film role, as a villain in the next Marvel Cinematic Universe film or as a mechanic in the next Fast and Furious installment? <laughs> oh, man. Well, what kind of villain? <laughs> I think I, I can see you as Doctor Doom. I think I'm going to go with Doctor Doom for you. I feel like you've got that kind of gravitas and intellect. Um, well, as long as it's nothing stereotypical, like some kind of, uh, you know, Eastern European, um, villain, you know, that, because it's kind of been beat to death, that idea. And, um, I think that, um, yeah, sure. Why not? I mean, there's so, it's so, it's so, it's so, you know, there's so much to do in the world of cinema that hasn't been done, but it, oftentimes when you read a script, you just think, why are they doing that again? You know, and um, but I feel like there is a lot, so, some really interesting new stories bubbling up. And uh, yeah, hopefully, hopefully 
another another fresh, crispy, sizzling script comes my way that I could really stick my teeth in, you know? Now, speaking of stick your teeth into, the final question we always love to ask our guests is, what is in your pop life? What are you enjoying? What are the stories bubbling up, either in music or television or film, that you've been loving lately? Um, I really love Clark, by directed by Jonas Ackerland. And um, it's a story of Swedish bank robber. And it's kind of, uh, it's a series that, you know, are, are very kind of... Um, swashbuckling and uh, the way i mean jonas has a super knack for making great music videos i mean as he's done for rumstein and and madonna and um uh quite a number of people i mean he did he did also the the lords of of chaos about scandinavian death metal uh black metal scene so he just has a such a great gift for that that making this particular villain story very vaudevillian and uh, uplifting ironically enough it was recommended to me by my friends who are in ukraine right now in kiev who thought for the situation they're in you know it was quite um exactly that uplifting and um you know had all those vitamins that you need when you have to power plot or stuff you know so that that was very good well, thank you for uh, giving us the vitamins to help us power through. Thanks to Eugene Hutz for joining us. I'll remind our listeners, if you want to provide some support for the people of Ukraine, you can find an array of options at the Gogol Bordello website. Just visit gogolbordello.com and click on Support Ukraine. And to all our listeners, I will see you all next time on the next episode of Pop Life. Thanks for listening to Pop Life, a production of WAER, Syracuse Public Media. You can find archived episodes at waer.org. And don't forget to subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen for automatic delivery of new episodes.